You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Welcome to the Vine. If you're new here, just want to say welcome. I would love to meet you. I'm Zach, one of the pastors, and um, there's lots of leaders around here that wear name tags. And so if you're new here, we'd love to get to know you and uh, just welcome you. And as a church, we want to really be a welcoming church. So if you see somebody that's new, um, don't be afraid to say hi. This is a great time for that. And you can maybe continue this conversation that you've just had uh, in the lobby afterwards. So we encourage us to do that. We really want to be a warm church. So let's go out of our way to make those that are new feel welcome this morning and every morning. Uh, We are in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We are working through what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. Before we dive into that, just wanted to ask your prayer for one thing. Um, Myself and four other Vine members are heading out to Ecuador tomorrow morning, bright and early. Yeah, at uh, 4.30 a.m. Yep, it's going to be glorious. And uh, so this is what, um, you've probably heard a lot about this, but if you're new, again, um, once a year, I have the privilege and I get to bring uh, Tony Tucci. Wave your hand, Tony, back there. He's new. He, uh, he speaks fluent Spanish, and so he gets to teach uh, in Spanish. Um, I have to use, I'm the, like the, the idiot who has to use a translator, but um, he, uh, he, he teaches in Spanish, and so we get the opportunity to gather with about 40 men and women who are leaders in Ecuadorian churches that come from all over, and it's just like a conference, so teaching from like 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And we're taking um, Laurel Eccles and Jackie Garcia and Chelsea Peck to kind of be conference support and lots of different things to just love and serve these Ecuadorian leaders coming. And so if you would just pray for us, we'll be gone for a week, um, that we would just be a blessing for the sake of church planting among the nations. And so we would ask for that. So let's let's open our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 5. And Laurel's going to come and read our text for us this morning. Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The word of the Lord. Yeah, let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to your word this morning, that we would um, find deep joy in it, that we would have soft hearts to receive it, that we would receive it as a gift, um, that we would receive it not as um, a burden, but as a, a joy from a loving father who loves his children, his sons and his daughters. And so we have your word as a gift because you love us. You haven't left us alone, silent, without a word from God in the universe. But you have spoken. You are there and you are not silent. And so we thank you for that 
this morning, God, and may we receive it as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you just heard the text, and if you just look at it with me. Just let your eyes kind of gla- um, glance over it. It's a hard word, right? I- I'll bring you into my headspace as I was preparing this week. As I read this text this week, man, my first response, honestly, my knee-jerk response was, yeah, but, right? Like, look at verse 39. Do not resist the one who is evil. Like, really? Like, does that text mean that we're called to be doormats? In a culture that loves to advocate and fight for our rights? I mean, that's a high cultural value these days, right? I'm going to fight for my rights. In some ways, it's seen as immoral in our culture if you don't stand up for yourself. You don't fight for your rights. This kind of grates against our American mindset, does it not? Like Jesus, isn't fighting for our rights a good thing? Well, maybe, maybe not. But as I confess my like knee-jerk kind of posture of, you know, like a questioning, a slight resistance, right? I was reminded of like, man, I hate it when my kids do that to me, you know, where I'm instructing my kids and I say like, hey guys, I want you guys to do such and such because that's going to be a blessing for our family. And the first response from the kids is, well, yeah, but dad, did you, like, it's like, oh, it's kind of frustrating, you know. And, and you know what's really good about it is it shows that my kids are thinking critically. Um, and I mean, maybe that's really not what they're thinking <laughs> But, like, I want them to not just be bowled over by every whim or fad and to, like, look at things and to learn to ask questions, right? That's a good thing in, a, in its right context. But typically because I'm older, I have more life experience. And so not always. Sometimes when they say, yeah, but, Dad, they're right. But it's more often the case, especially at the age that they are, um, I've got good reasons that I want to communicate to them for what I want them to do that they most likely haven't thought through. And so if if that's frustrating for me as a father, how much more for our heavenly father who doesn't ever get it wrong, who's not a sinful, fallible father like me? How much more should we listen to our heavenly father when he speaks through his word? So maybe you, you join me in this. And I'm preaching to myself here, and maybe if you can relate to this, let's just kind of put the critical thinking hats aside for a second. And, and, and that, that maybe wants to question Jesus and his wisdom, speaking to myself here. And maybe first our posture, just first, could be submission, listening. Just try to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. Maybe we can try to seek to understand first before we or before I, resist with objections. Like, that's good for my heart. Maybe that's good for your heart, too. So let me ask it this way. When you read this text, what do you think is at the heart of what Jesus is saying? Like, what's the core? What's the the base, kind of raw foundation, if you were to sum it up in a sentence? Let's read it again. Verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So he's referencing here again the Old Testament law. But I say to you, 
do not resist the one who is evil. Really? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, how would, how would you summarize that? Well, let's think of our world right now. And let's think of our own hearts right now. Retaliation is often the name of the game, right? So many parts of the world and so many parts of my heart, retaliation is the name of the game. If you think about just the history of the world and nations at war with one another, you bomb us, we bomb you back. That's just the way the warfare works, right? If you think about the business world, if, if you cheat me in a business deal, man, I might try to get you back. I'm watching, this is just real simple, in like sports, this happens all the time. It's just human nature. I'm watching a lot of NBA finals right now or conference finals. And, that's right. And um, <laughs> Milwaukee Bucks, come on. And uh, so what you often see is a guy come down and he'll score on his guy that's defending him. And immediately the guy that was defending and got scored on will try to get the other guy back and try to score on him. I mean, that's just kind of this mindset thing that we have for those that, that are competitive. It's a, re, it's a re, retaliation mindset. But think about this from a, from a biblical worldview, okay? I want, I, want us to, I want to train ourselves to think Bible, have our knee-jerk response be what does God say about this? Not what, what do I say about this. No, but what does God say about this? And how can I have my mind conform to God's mind? I want to have the mind of Christ. That's happening within us. But it takes training in understanding God's word. So as we think about the biblical worldview, what would God say about a retaliation mindset? Well, he's already said it this morning. But let's think about more broadly than Matthew 5. How could Jesus have the audacity to call his people to consider this way of life? The kind of life that doesn't pursue retaliation. How could Jesus call his people, how could Jesus call his people to this? Well, maybe, real simple, maybe it's because that's how God is. This is who our God is. He doesn't pursue knee-jerk retaliation on a consistent basis, on a constant basis. Think of how scary it would be if God behaved in the same way that our hearts want to behave when we're cheated or harmed. If that's how God treated us, where would that where would that leave us? You feel that? Aren't we thankful that God doesn't treat us in the way that the world works and the way that our hearts are naturally bent? Like, this is just a great opportunity this morning, real simple, to just stand in awe of the grace of God in the gospel. Like, we sin against our Heavenly Father in so many ways Day after day after day. Yet, God does not retaliate with immediate justice. That's mercy. 
Now, for sure, there are biblical instances of immediate justice. You can see it in the Old and in the New Testament. You read about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Immediate justice. Boom. And for sure, the Bible says that we reap what we sow. It might take a while. But by and large, we know that God doesn't react immediately every time he has sinned against. You know how I know that? Because we're all sitting here right now. I'm going to draw a little bit on what James Davenport's going to preach next week. But if you just look down to verse 45 of chapter 5, look at what, look at what Jesus says. Jesus reminds his hearers that God allows the Son. That's a massive statement. That God allows the Son. God is sovereign over the sun rising and setting every single day. He just says it in passing. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So you remember that, like, if God doesn't cause the sun to rise and to set every day, if the sun doesn't exist, we don't exist. That's just basic science, right? And Jesus is saying, the sun rising, the gift of the sun rising every single morning is mercy. Because who deserves that? We take that for granted every single day that the sun rises on on a city that assaults God in his glory every day. And the sun keeps rising every day. Real simple, when you roll out of bed in the morning and your feet hit the floor and the sun is up, it's a light out, be reminded that Jesus says, that's the mercy of God on the just and the unjust. He's a merciful God. He sustains the lives of those who sin against him every single day. So, I think Jesus has the audacity to ask his people to consider this way of life. His kingdom people, those who want to acknowledge his rule and reign and live in the kingdom where Jesus reigns. He asks us to pursue a way of life that is full of mercy, not retaliation, simply because that's who God is. See the sunrise. See the the rain come down. Be reminded of who your heavenly father is. Now, listen. Listen. For those of you who know your Bible, you might have a yeah, but right now. Yeah, but doesn't, there's, doesn't the Bible say there will be a day of final justice? Yes. There will be a day of God's wrath. The Bible is very clear on this. God is not a pacifist. But that is in God's hands and not ours. Remember what he says here in Romans 12. This is such a great verse for us in our hearts that yearn for retaliation at times. This is Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written. Here's what God says. It's not yours. It's not yours. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. But here it is. But overcome. There is an overcoming of evil. But it doesn't come through retaliation. It comes through good. It comes to good. Okay, so where does that leave us? Well, first of all, 
it leaves us with a reminder of who God is, right? We need reminders. We need reminders. I'm forgetful. Lord, remind me again who you are. Okay, yes, I remember. You are a God of mercy, and you have displayed that in the sun rising this morning. And so he calls us to conform our lives to this way as well. And James is going to talk a lot about this next week. But here's the question. What does that actually mean in practice? How does that concept get embodied in our daily lives? How do we figure out how to live moment to moment with this? Well, this is a great time for this text to come into our way of thinking. And this is a great time for us to be reminded of some principles on how to read our Bibles well, how to interpret our Bibles well. If you want to get into the nitty-gritty of how to apply this, we have to become good interpreters of the Bible. So one of the things we talk about a lot is if you want to know what a passage of Scripture is all about, look for repeated words, repeated words, okay? Here's a couple other ones that are really going to come into play this morning as we seek to understand this text. Number one, we have to learn to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And number two, we have to learn about the historical context, okay? So when it comes to our text for this morning, we're going we're to start with interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Meaning, uh, I'm not going to understand this text just by itself. It's like, does the other, do the other, other portions of Scripture that shine light on this text this morning. So if you just had this text this morning, you might think that God is a pacifist. But as we're trying to interpret Scripture with Scripture, he's inspired all of it. We read in Romans 13 that God is not a pacifist. He does desire to see justice in real time, in our world, play out. And he says in Romans 13 that a lot of times that's going to happen through government. And government is a good thing. Government is structure ordained by God. And oftentimes it is the arm of God's justice. Punishments, law keeping, that is dished out by governments. Okay, so we, so we know that, 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 this, that this text isn't that God is a pacifist, that there is a time and place for real-time justice. Another example would be Paul in the book of Acts. Paul is constantly being persecuted as he's running around the Middle East, Jerusalem, and all around there planting churches. And he gets beat up, and he gets dragged before the authorities. And one time, he's about to get beat up really bad, get flogged by uh, the Roman authorities because he was causing a, causing a ruckus. And they didn't know that he was a Roman citizen. And so he turns to them and he says, hey, are you going to beat me like this? You know that it's unlawful to do that to a Roman citizen because it was. They couldn't do that to Roman citizens. He stood up for his rights. He defended justice, right? Now, was Paul resisting an evil person? By doing this and forsaking the words of Jesus? Well, again, we got to, uh, here we go. Now we're going to go to the second principle. We're going to climb into the world of the text. What's the historical context here that we need to put in play? We're interpreting Scripture with Scripture. We're also going to understand the context of Jesus' world, the historical context, as we seek to understand our text for today. So let's keep these things in mind as we walk through this piece by piece. Look at verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but 
If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, so this is, this is a little technical, but it would really be helpful. So if anyone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, the, I wouldn't say the biblical understanding, but most commentators would say this, and I, I agree, that you know, I think it's factually clear that most people are right-handed. If you're left-handed, raise your hand. Okay, so we're doing pretty good with our percentages. So most people are right-handed. So if you're going, just think about this, if there's someone standing in front of me and I'm going to whack them and I'm right-handed, I'm going to do that with my right hand, um, it's going to land where? It's going to land on their left cheek. But this says if someone slaps you on the right. So what that is, is in Jesus' day, that would be a backhanded slap. If I slap someone backhanded, I would land that on their right cheek. Now, here's where we have to understand the historical context. In Jesus' day, this number is like the height of an insult, okay? It doesn't really mean much in our culture, but in their culture, if you want to really, really insult someone, it's this deal, okay? Now, if you're trying to do like maximum violence or damage, you know, you're going to do other things, a closed fist or, uh, you know, on the left cheek with this kind of wind up. This deal, that's just a, a gross height, the height of an insult, that's what Jesus is saying here. This is less about physical violence and more about being deeply insulted. And so what is Jesus saying here? He's just saying, don't trade insults, even if they cut you super deep. If someone insults you in the most degrading way, don't retaliate. Don't, fire, don't fight fire with fire, wrong with wrong. I was um, looking at a, at a Twitter post this week in passing, and I've seen a lot about the current kind of chaos in the media that's come from changing laws about abortion. And I was reading a woman, her name is Karen Swallow Pryor. She's a professor at Liberty University in Virginia. And uh, she was just explaining and linking to an article that, something that she wrote about being pro-life. And the response in one of the comments was just, just a really gross insult with some colorful language. Kind of just an attack on her. Like, no, no interacting with her points, but just attacking her character. And she, didn't, she did this verse. She didn't respond. She didn't retaliate. She, she wrote to this person, just simply, God bless you. And I don't think she was being snarky or sarcastic. I think she really meant it, just knowing her character. That was this verse in action. God bless you. I'm not going to retaliate. It's not worth it. Let's keep reading verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. All right. So this is hard for us to understand. Again, this is not our culture. So why would you sue someone and take their clothes? That sounds kind of weird, right? Well, in Jesus' day, most people were poor. Okay, we live in a culture where there is a strong middle class, very much compared to their day. In their day, the middle class was very small. Most people were poor. And so you probably had a pair of shoes, and you might have one pair of clothes, one change of clothing, clothing, maybe two changes of clothing. And so a tunic was something you would wear like as just like your, like this would be maybe like a, the equivalent of a tunic, just a shirt. And then a cloak would be what you would wear when it was cold, a long flowing coat, like an outer garment. 
And that might serve as your blanket as well at night. And so if you got in legal trouble with somebody, they might want to sue you and take your clothing. I mean, you remember when Jesus was being crucified, the soldiers cast lots for his clothes? Like, why would you want his clothes that were probably all bloody and gross? Well, because these guys were probably poor. Clothes were valuable. And so Jesus is saying, if someone sues you for something of value, give it to them. If the price to be paid is a piece of clothing, and in Jesus' day that made a lot of sense, then go above and beyond and give them the outer garment as well. If they want, you, they want your shirt, give them your coat as well. Go above and beyond. Don't resist the person who wants to take from you. Now, here's the question that we have to wrestle with. How could somebody do this? Like, where does the power to have that mindset, where does that power come from? I think it comes just real basic from tr- trusting that God is your provider. Like, if, if I don't believe that God is my provider, I'm going to cling to my possessions, my clothes or whatever else. I'm going to cling to my stuff with all that I have. But if I believe, like Matthew says in chapter 6, quoting Jesus, that he clothes the lilies of the field. He gives them clothes. God is your provider. So you don't have to be in control. You didn't provide for the shirt that you have, ultimately. So God will provide for the shirt that you don't have. You feel that? The only way that you can enact this text is if we have a deep-seated trust that God is our provider. You feel that? You see that? There's a beautiful example of this from the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, the author is writing to a persecuted church. These are people during the, probably the 60s of the Roman Empire, the first century, year 60, 62, right around there. And Nero was probably the emperor, and he's just a psycho. And he just unleashed this crazy persecution. And the book of Hebrews has this text where he's, this pastor is writing to this audience who's being persecuted. And look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 32. It'll be on the screen. And recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning after you became a Christian, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you're united with those that are suffering for their faith. Verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison. So people are getting thrown into prison for their faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see that there? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. Who's the provider of that better possession? It's God. So imagine this this context. You go and visit somebody in prison who's who's suffering for their faith. And that day, you don't have someone to take care of you in your prison. No one else is going to do it. No one's feeding you. You had to have friends. And so you go meet with your friends who are being persecuted for their faith and are in prison. And while you're gone, some people get into your house, break into your house, smash your stuff, steal some things. 
And you get back. And it says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How could you get back to your house and, and sing a praise song to the Lord with joy in the ruins of your apartment or whatever? They took your computer and your clothes, your shoes. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Meaning what God will provide, he's a provider, later, see that? Is going to be better and more abiding. I mean, it's going to last longer. The stuff in my apartment that they just plundered, that's nothing compared to what I will have one day. And God is my provider. I trust him for it so I don't have to freak out. Now, does that sound hard? It sounds hard to me. But I would say it's worse than that. I would say it's impossible. Unless... God provides the power, and thank God that he has. He has unleashed his Holy Spirit on his people, and now they have the ability to trust him and with joy accept the plundering of their property. With joy accept the fact that, yeah, if you sue me, I might go above and beyond to try to bless you. If you are in Christ this morning, this is who you are. This is who God says you are. You are this kind of person. So now let's just keep being who we are. Let's just keep being who we are. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Okay, again, historical context. What's going on here? Well, remember when Jesus was being crucified and the weight of the cross was too much? And he falls down. He can't do it anymore. He's been beaten, just beaten to bits. He can't do it anymore. And they grab this guy. His name was Simon of Cyrene. And they force him to carry the cross. So what's going on historically is this. The Roman government said that a, a, a centurion or a Roman soldier could grab anyone, just any citizen, and make them go a thousand paces. Maybe these soldiers had to carry something because they're building something. Or, you know, like the Romans were famous for roads. So you had to haul some equipment to build this road. And so they could just, by law, grab someone and say, I'm requiring you to help me for a, a thousand paces. Now we translate that a mile, okay? It'd be in our context like getting drafted. My, my grandpa and my dad were both drafted into the army, World War I and Vietnam. It'd be like when um, our streets out front of our house had to get all new um, gutters and um, drainage and all that. And they just tore up the whole thing. And then, guess what? It's not our street, but we get to pay for it, right? So we just get charged $4,800 because we all have to pitch in to fix the street. Special assessment, right? I didn't ask for that. It was just required. And the Roman government said that their soldiers could do this as well. So Jesus is just saying, if, if this is forced upon you and you've got no say in the matter, we should be overboard to be generous. We should be overboard to be generous. This is who we are. This is who our God is. We are generous like this because we're made in the image of a generous God. Let's be who we are. Verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you. 
and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, this just, again, underscores the idea of generosity that Jesus is speaking to. Retaliation, think about it. Retaliation is always selfish in its orientation. I'm getting back at you because I'm thinking about me. But generosity is thinking about the other person. It's, it's a selfless mindset. That's what generosity is. Now, when Jesus says this in 42, does it mean that you have to give everything? That's not what it says. Does it mean that you have to give in the exact way that someone asks? Are there limits? Sure. If there were no limits, then you wouldn't have anything. And then what good would you be to someone who's asking? But the point here is just this, that we're created in the image of an abundantly generous God. A God who is not stingy at all. And so we're not either. We have a generosity impulse that is not, not a stingy impulse because the spirit of our eternally generous God lives in us. You feel that? So what's the point of all this this morning? The point is this. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that my people, the citizens of my kingdom, where I rule and reign, it's going to look different. It's got different values than the values of the world. It's going to shine like a city on a hill where you look up on that hill and you see those spotlights that light up this, this city with these beautiful buildings. And you just can't take your eye off it. Like it's just so beautiful. It's just right there. It's elevated, lit up. He's saying that's what my people are like in the world. By how they carry themselves. They don't pursue retaliation that's fueled by selfishness. Now, I'm sure we all feel this morning how contrary this is to our human nature, right? And this is why we need help. If this feels overwhelming to you this morning, it kind of does to me. Man, here's the beauty. Jesus promises help. For who? For those who just ask. He says, how much more does the Father love to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more? So if this feels overwhelming to you, it's real simple. Jesus says, come. Come to me. Ask me for help. I'm, I, I am making you this kind of person by my spirit alive in you. And you, you want more of it? Just ask. He loves to answer that prayer. That's a biblical promise. Let me close with this great quote from a former uh, seminary professor of mine, and then we'll be done. Listen to what Dr. Doriani says. He says, the values of a disciple are the values of his Lord. The values of the kingdom are the values of the king. We look to Christ. We turn the other cheek because he turned the other cheek. We give generously to all because he gives generously to all. We go the extra mile because he went the extra mile, even with us. For when we, and not just the Romans, were his enemies, he won us with his love. Jesus does not prohibit the administration of justice. He will overthrow Satan himself one day and punish him. But as God's children, we share in his supreme righteousness when we stop standing on our rights, when we forego revenge and do good to all. We are strong for Jesus is strong, but we also give for Jesus gives. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word this morning, for how it helps us. Lord, we, we ask for more of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would make us these kind of people. We trust you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.